conversation with my mom the like a couple of weeks ago and she's you know 73 years old and she, you know she was telling me hey like you know my my neighbor was talking about cryptocurrencies and his son is buying and all this stuff so even now the, the point is my mom is even now talking about it. she's 75 years old coming to you live from Hong Kong Fintech Week this is the crypto savvy podcast from the Hashkey group bringing you the essentials everything you need to know about the world of crypto in one place with our host Walter Jennings Handling digital assets in disputes such as liquidation or insolvency is a very complicated matter. Thankfully, there's the firm Alvarez and Marcel, experts in liquidation since the handling the Lehman Brothers collapse in 2007-2008. Joining us today is Henry Chambers and Jay Kim. They're both leading the crypto practice for Asia Pacific at Alvarez and Marcel. And we're going to talk about crypto, digital assets, in bankruptcies and liquidation and some of the more spectacular cases of fraud, corruption or rug pulls. There's a lot to learn. Thank you for joining Crypto Savvy. I'm joined in the booth today here at Hong Kong Fintech Week by Henry Chambers and Jay Kim from Alvarez and Marcel. Um, thank you, gentlemen, for coming on the show today. Well, thank you, Walter, for, for having us and, and the Hashkey Group. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having us. Henry, let me begin with you. You head up Alvarez and Marcel's crypto practice. Mm. Now, to me, that sounds like a, a, a trader and a, a crypto owner, but Alvarez and Marcel has its own unique take on this. Can you perhaps tell us a bit more about yourself and your firm and the, the business you focus on? Sure, sure. So, so maybe just to talk about Alvarez and Marcel um, to begin with. Uh, Alvarez and Marcel's heritage is in restructuring, traditional financial restructuring. Um, and our heritage, we were, we were brought up in New York in the late 1980s, uh, and we de dealt with some of the biggest kind of restructuring and insolvency matters um, at that time, or pr primarily restructuring. Uh, we, we did the Lehman Brothers restructuring, we took uh, an interim position there. Um, and from that grew various other ancillary services, transaction advice, and where myself and Jay sit in the disputes and investigations team. Now, our particular take as it relates to crypto is very much looking at the disputes, investigations, and compliance uh, requirements uh, and, and, and work potentially to be done in the crypto space. So, as you said, Henry, your firm specializes in restructuring, insolvencies, bankruptcy, and yet you're both in the crypto area. How do those two intersect? What we're seeing in disputes and investigations in Alvarez and Marcel is a real opportunity for us to assist participants in the crypto space. And there are three key areas which we think are really important for digital asset market participants and other members of our traditional you know, backgrounds. We're an, I'm an accountant, Jay's a data analytics guy, and lawyers and other people existing in this traditional finance world need to be focused and literate about is how to deal with investigations, disputes, and compliance. Okay, so um, is this a case when a modern-day Lehman Brothers occurs and there are digital assets being held, or are you actually working uh, specifically with crypto providers or a little whenever there's crypto in the equation, you guys get involved? Sure. I mean, where we're seeing the opportunities with our clients um, are in three different spaces, really. I mean, firstly, it's with exchanges. And I think if you had an earlier guest, um, very much talked about the compliance requirements of exchanges. Clearly, it's a very fast moving and growing area for the regulations around cryptocurrency. So firms like ours, and often in conjunction with law firms, would assist proactively exchanges deal with their compliance challenges, making sure they're playing within the boundaries to the extent they exist uh, with a particular regulatory regime, whether it's here in Hong Kong, in the US, or elsewhere. 
Where we also come into play in that compliance space is very much acting in a proactive manner. So let's say there's been a regulatory interest in your particular um, you know, exchange or, or digital asset platform. We can help you respond to the regulator in dealing with whatever kind of requests they've made from you. Okay, and um, Jay, how does the um, uh, data analytics come in? I suppose blockchain has to give you plenty of uh, source code to work from? Sure, it, 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 this comes into play when we're dealing with tracing of transactions. So if we're dealing with, uh, say, in a fraud investigation or money has been, say, uh, misappropriated somewhere, we would come in to do some asset tracing analysis. So what we can do is, say, if we get provided with information around wallet addresses or transaction IDs, what we can do is uh, search the public blockchain to look for uh, and do the asset tracing to try and uncover the facts around the case. So yeah, I remember the oil pipeline in the U.S. was... Yeah, the uh, oil pipeline, yeah. yeah. they paid off the um, ransom in Bitcoin, and um, I think the, the hackers were quite surprised how easy it was to follow that yeah. transaction. Well, it, it was funny about some of the rumors associated with that, because, you know, the rumors were that, you know, have they managed to break the, the, the SHA-256 uh, cryptography? And if that's the end, well, that's the end of everything. What, what I think actually happened was probably more likely they got kind of subpoenas to go and get hold of the servers, and someone probably wasn't that careful about how they kept their, their public, uh, their private key. Um, but it's great, and that's exactly kind of one of the things we want to demonstrate is, you know, just because uh, something's gone and hit cryptocurrency, it's not the end of the story, right? It's not lost forever. You can follow that chain of transactions and with various other techniques associated with that, try to identify a pot of assets to go and recover them. Okay, and just for our listeners, please help me unpick that statement a little Sorry, bit. Yes. When you said um, their ability to break the chain versus getting a server via uh, sure. subpoena. Sure, so, so I guess the fundamental technology behind cryptocurrency uh, is cryptography. There's a you know, very strong hash associated with that, right? Um, and the, the premise is that is unbreakable. You can't brute force your way through that, um, that security feature. Now, if you are able to do that, then, then, then everything is not safe. Right, uh, then the crypto is no longer the uh, secure store of value correct. that we thought it was. So Cor Correct, and, and I think at that point, there's probably bigger issues in the world <laughs> at that point, because that's what secures the nuclear codes, for example, that kind of cryptography. What we think probably happened in that instance was that uh, using the, the powers that the regulators and, and the law enforcement have in the US, they were able to seize servers and identify the private key, which would then give them access to the wallets such that they can uh, enforce and, and, and take ownership of that Bitcoin that was paid as the, as the ransom. Okay, and um, uh, specifically within these transactions, how does the fact that this is all written on blockchain facilitate the, the, the say, Jay, the, the looking at the data? Sure, so if we're looking at public tokens like Bitcoin or Ethereum, all this is on the public blockchain. And think about the public blockchain like Bitcoin is that uh, it's pseudo-anonymous. So while while there are wallet addresses that uh, it may not specifically tie to specific persons or individuals, um, you can, um, using heuristics, understand, uh, based on the various attributes, understand what, you know, if wallets are associated with each other and, and where it may have come from. So. There are ways to uncover that, and you can use various tools uh, that are out there. Some of the ones that we're familiar with are Chainalysis, CypherTrace, Elliptical, uh, Elliptic, sorry. And um, what this does is um, it, it'll visually um, 
show uh, the transaction flow of, of these types of wallets going from wallet to wallet. So it can help you do the asset tracing on this. So it's, it's tools like this that we can help us understand more about how to trace um, you know, where the funds went. Now, is there anything, you know, you are advising uh, large institutions um, and how is the kind of the insolvency and restructuring work that you're involved in with crypto different from, say, the traditional work you've done? I mean, quite frankly, it's not that different. The modalities that people use to commit fraud, to undertake corrupt transactions, and where we see insolvency is absolutely analogous to what's happening in traditional finance. What is different is the terminology and the way the underlying technology works, but quite frankly, it's still value that's been moving between party to party, and whether that's cryptocurrency, whether that's bags of cash, um, you know, it's, it's still the same kind of investigative uh, process that we would undertake when we're trying to, to go through these investigations. Now, Alvarez and Marshall had been uh, more of a traditional um, uh, firm, and what was it that uh, provided this opportunity to get into digital assets? I think what we're finding is that cryptocurrencies were, were becoming more and more and more mainstream as it comes. You know, like even like I had a conversation with my mom the, like a couple of weeks ago and she's, you know, 73 years old and, she, you know, she was telling me, hey, like, you, you know, my, my neighbor was talking about cryptocurrencies and his son is buying and all this stuff. So even now, the, the point is my mom is even now talking about it and she's 75 years old. And so for us, we need to be able to adapt, right? As accountants, as technologists, we need to, be able to apply these innovative technologies in finance and understand how to apply them to matter like investigations and solvency cases um, um, that, that we're seeing today. And how do you advise your clients, traditional banks or law firms or others, in kind of adapting to this new technology? I think the first part of this is, is education. And I think that's probably part of the point of, of your podcast, right? To educate people. Because a lot of the terminology and a lot of understanding does take a little bit of getting up to speed to understand how it, how it all fits together. So, so we find what's really helpful with our, with our law firm um, kind of contemporaries and, and banks and our other clients is well, explaining how this all works and how this all fits together in a language that they can understand and, and can kind of conceptualize. So that's kind of the first stage, I think, that with that. And then after that, it's very much an information gathering exercise as we go through an investigative process. Let's talk about an investigative process. And we're talking about how the law treats digital assets. Our podcast is called Crypto Savvy. And as the name goes by, we want our audience to become not only well-versed, but comfortable when talking about trading and digital assets and cryptocurrencies. One last covered area is the legal side of things. How does the law tie into digital assets? We don't hear this discussed enough. You know, why do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll take this. I mean, the, the topic of cryptocurrencies, is, as I'm sure you know, is, is broad and deep. Right? We, we both spent, Henry and I, countless hours uh, down the crypto rabbit hole. And certainly there's a sizable amount of content around crypto law and regulations. And though it may not be widespread, there's certainly a lot of um, it's a topic that comes up very often and, and the implications can be very profound. So, however, there are a few reasons why, you know, such legal matters may not be discussed as often. And quite frankly, the topic of law and regulations may not be interesting as, you know, new coins been issued or, or new crypto projects. But there are, a, you know, an avid following around um, rules and regulations, particularly around the superpowers like U.S. and China. And, you know, both have taken quite different stances on crypto. But um now, as it relates to law and respect to case law 
in, in common law jurisdictions, many law firms will publish articles about uh, the outcomes of court cases heard, uh, which will provide guidance on, on future cases. And, and while these outcomes might not be picked up by mainstream crypto uh, media, they are nonetheless followed by, you know, closely followed by myself and Henry on, on, in, in the development of these areas. We've talked uh, a bit about a number of subjects, but we keep coming back to the terms fraud and corruption, and um, I don't know the difference between the two. Henry, can you enlighten me? Sure, sure, absolutely, and this is the, absolutely the mainstay of, of my life as a, as a forensic accountant uh, undertaking investigations. I mean, fraud at its very basic level um, is the use of deceptive means for illicit financial gain. Right, that, that's very, you know, basically what it's about. And in the crypto space, we hear lots and lots about fraud. We hear about rug pulls, we hear about cyber attacks, we hear about other types of scams, uh, we hear about Ponzi schemes. Now, corruption is slightly different to that, and that's where the, someone is abusing their position of power uh, for their own personal gain, and that's often in the context of them being a government official. So if you're a government official, I'm paying you a bribe in order to get something that I would not necessarily have had myself. And again, we're starting to see cryptocurrency being used to actually facilitate and make those corrupt payments to people. Okay, well, um, one of the terms you mentioned was rug pull, and I read, read this just yesterday in the New York Times around the Squid Games uh, offer and the Squid Coin. Uh, can you explain to us what a rug pull is? Sure, sure, and I think you know many of your listeners may be aware of, of, of these rug pulls, but they're one of the things that's really a big issue in, in the crypto industry and something that's very talked about uh, a lot. Essentially, you've got a, an exchange or a project or some other type of token capital raise um, that you know, with a big bluster is all you know come into life and promoted uh, and raised a whole bunch of capital um, as it relates to squid token there was a there was a token that was essentially uh, linked to the very popular Netflix series uh, uh, squid game uh, and off the back of that uh, they raised a whole bunch of uh, money and now it was linked to the game but, to the show yes, but, but, but wasn't actually officially <laughs> of them and the, the, there was no endorsement I by don't those think at so all. exactly and you know, that's one of the red flags that we'd highlighted uh, when we looked at this. Well, that's the kind of thing you need to be thinking about when you're trying to avoid these kind of rug pulls. You know, uh, what, what are the things that, when, will it pass the sniff test, right? Does the white paper make sense? Have you understood it? You know, how long has the website been around? You know, is it spelt in, you know, proper English and, and grammar, right? All the kind of things you start to piece together to understand, well, what are the red flags here? Rather than just kind of diving into this um, FOMO type thing, like, oh, I want to get in on this token. Um, well, think about let's let's be a little bit more considered about that before before I dive in because potentially you could be the the, the uh, subject of, of a rug pull and before you know it the the founders are gone that all your contact points are gone uh, and you're just left carrying the bag. What are some of the things investors can do to avoid being involved in these kinds of uh, shenanigans? <laughs> I mean. We think it's all about research and doing and not just diving into something without understanding truly what you're investing. Because many of the kind of crypto products can be very complex. Many of these kind of decentralized type uh, protocols, um, they're, they're, the white papers asserted are very, very in-depth. So if you don't understand it, you know, you'd think, you should think about whether you should be investing in it. And, and that's kind of advice we give to anyone in any kind of financial product. Um, as well as that, trying to, to avoid it, say very much looking out for these red flags that we talked about, uh, you know, the, the age of the website, spelling, uh, and so on. But, but quite frankly, it's often hard to discern 
right? There are many, many kind of startups and apps that are looking to launch their new token and trying to identify which ones have good intentions and which ones are scams is quite difficult. Well, there is always the security token offered off of a regulated exchange, which uh, well, may provide some more certainties. Uh, well, absolutely, and, and I think that would give you some level of confidence uh, in that token, but in, in that kind of very kind of edge fringe area of coins, yes, obviously it's, it's more of a risk. Ponzi schemes uh, help us, uh, it's been a while since Bernie Madoff, can you help us uh, <laughs> sure. get up to speed on what those are? Sure. So, so Ponzi schemes, again, have been another feature in terms of this illicit crypto activity. And Ponzi scheme is essentially a scheme whereby you have people joining a platform and essentially putting money in uh, to pay the first investor. So as long as you've got people joining the scheme and putting money in, um, there's no need to actually have a profit from underlying asset. The people at the top are feeding from the people at the bottom. Uh, and that merry-go-round continues in, until uh, you haven't got anyone less to, to add to it. Now, we've seen this a couple of times you know, in, in the past, and I know in, in kind of the, the mid-2010s, um, some of the big exchanges, or purported exchanges at that time, turned out to be Ponzi schemes and have gone through all the relevant courts of law that said, you know, this has got the features of a pyramid scheme, a Ponzi scheme, uh, and all of the investors in those instances you know, did lose out a lot. Okay, and um, I can't finish off the trifecta without getting a definition or an example of corruption. Corruption, absolutely. And as I say, this is another thing that we've started to see um, in cryptocurrency, uh, in the cryptocurrency sphere, and inquiries from our clients about how cryptocurrency could be used to make corrupt payments. Uh, an example we've seen recently uh, was with uh, the, the lead coach of the Zimbabwean cricket team, no less. Um, he was found uh, guilty by an ICC, so International Cricket Committee Tribunal, to have received, um, 30, I think it was at the time, $35,000 dollars worth of Bitcoin in order in exchange uh, for betting information that would help a, a syndicate. Kind of, this is information that wouldn't have otherwise been available to those uh, bettors, but then gave them advantage when they were betting on the cricket. Um, you know, this is a modality that people can use, especially because they under think it's complex uh, and, and difficult to follow um, and potentially could transfer large amounts of value. Again, back to that eponymous bag of cash. You don't need to do that anymore. You can potentially do it via cryptocurrency. And um, Jay, is there something about the data in crypto that makes it easier to track and trace? I mean, if we're trying to deal with, say, corruption or recovering assets? Yeah, uh, I think well, if you compare money laundering with just cash, right, once that's handed to someone else, that's not that data point is not there's no data behind that, that, that transfer. But with with uh, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum, there's the public blockchain that I mentioned earlier, there were you know, you'd be able to, I can go on cryptoblockchain.com uh, and look at the Blockchain Explorer and see all the wallet information that's been transacted, all the transaction information uh, about transactions out there. So it's that publicly available information that allows us to be able to dive in and do the data analytics on it. Okay, well, and uh, it, it's certainly there's no shortage of content or data in, in the blockchain. Look, I, I really do feel bad going down this rabbit hole of fraud, corruption, Ponzi schemes in crypto. Is, it, is there something unique about this industry that leads to this type of mm -hmm. uh, behavior or is that kind of endemic across other cultures, other, other industries? But what is it about crypto that leads itself to this kind of um, abuse? Sure, I mean, I, I think it's, there's a, the perceived complexity and the perceived anonymity of the whole thing makes it very attractive to fraudsters. You know, if they think they can make a large amount of money uh, and get away with it without anyone ever finding it, that, you know, that's a very, very attractive proposition to someone who is going to commit some kind of scam. And when you compare that to you know, going through the traditional banking system where you're going to need lots of KYC or AML potentially, although you, you know, do need that in cryptocurrency in many instances, 
But the traditional banking route, there's lots more gates there uh, when it, in terms of trying to identify fraudulent transactions. But, but here, um, you know, they've got a very good chance of, of getting away without some kind of input from, from, a, from an investigator trying to identify where it's all gone. Okay, now, um, I like Alvarez and Marcel. You seem to be uh, one step ahead. And Jay, one of the many use cases of blockchain technology happens to be preempting and detecting fraud and corruption. How can you use data analytics to preempt and detect before it's occurred? Sure, I mean, this is like, going back to some of the tools that we mentioned, we can use tools like Chainalysis or Elliptic or uh, CypherTrace, and what they do is they provide information around wallets, especially if they're risky or not. You know, it, would, would any of these wallet addresses come from, uh, say, uh, dark web? Have, have we seen them out there? So they've been able to map out many of the data points that are on the blockchain to figure out if, if wallet addresses are risky or not. And this can help us monitor and look for suspicious transactions. Yeah, yeah I do know that even at our company, we're using Chainalysis to understand the source of the Bitcoin because there are clean coins and dirty coins. Uh, now I know we haven't uh, put that on the agenda, but is that something you can kind of explain? Absolutely. And I, and I think it's an interesting topic and, and one that could potentially be a podcast in and of itself, right? Um, the concept of a clean coin is one that's its history, its lineage has got no association with illicit activity, whereas a dirty coin has at some point in its history been involved with you know, drug buying drugs or you know, money laundering, etc. Now, the, the difference is, obviously, with blockchain, you can see the history um, of that Bitcoin, right? But you know, but the thing about cash, you know, that that still probably got the same history at some point. But can you see where it came from? The answer is not. So the question becomes, and I don't know whether anyone's landed on this. How far do you look back in a Bitcoin or any other kind of public blockchain's history to identify whether it is clean or otherwise? And I've heard varying kind of uh, answers to that to that question. Um, depending on who you ask. Yeah, no, it's a, it, as you say, it is a rich subject. So look, um, uh, can you, from your personal experiences, can you share an example where you've used these analytic and forensics tools to successfully detect fraudulent behavior for a client? Sure, I, I can share one of the examples that happened recently. Uh, we, you know, we were involved in a matter with a large company where one of the employees was accused of using uh, the company's servers to, to do, perform some uh, cryptocurrency mining. Awesome. So, <laughs> yeah, so we were, what we were tasked with doing was identifying the evidence to show this, and this involved doing the forensic acquisitions of all the, the employees' uh, electronic devices, like his, uh, his computer. And so, you know, we were able to do, uh, once we've collected that, we did the, uh, you know, we were able to, we were searching for different artifacts for cryptocurrency, like wallet addresses and, and cryptocurrency mining software. And while we weren't able to find instances of that, what we were able to find uh, were the communication logs uh, that he had with his friends and family, boasting about this, you know, side profit that he'd been having doing with the mining operation. So this, this is one of the good stories that we have around uh, some of the, you know, the forensic work that we. No, I hope he posted his crimes on social. That seems <laughs> to me. <laughs> That's typically what people seem to do. <laughs> okay, well, um, there's been talk about need for a proper regulatory framework over cryptocurrencies. What can regulators actually do from a policy perspective to curtail fraud and corruption? Well, I think the first point and the starting point, and I think many regulators are doing this, is very much the AML, KYC element to this. Who are you transacting with? AML? Anti-money laundering. KYC? Know your customer. No acronyms on my show. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> 
So the anti-money laundering and, and know your customer checks and knowing who you're transacting with and where that money comes from serves as the first kind of filter against bad actors, right? So, uh, you know, are you getting rid of the, the politically exposed people? Are you getting the people who are known to be in sanctioned jurisdictions, okay? So once you've kind of uh, you put that in place, that starts to, I guess, inverted commas, clean up um, the, the space for, for the people who are involved in being in the regulatory, uh, you know, regulated uh, industry. Uh, the, the second point uh, being would be education. And I think this is, I've come across it, come back to this a few times. I think regulators need to start to educate participants in this industry and the wider financial industry about cryptocurrency. When we speak to people, they don't seem to know enough about how this all works and how this all fits together. Going down the path of education and telling people and making people understand what blockchain is, how cryptocurrency works, will go a long way to allowing them to start to eradicate some of the types of illicit activity that, that we're talking about when we want to make um, a space regulated. Okay. Jay, I have a question for you. How, as a company in the crypto space, what can companies do to reduce its risk of insolvency? Sure. I mean, as, as many of the well-known crypto platform insolvencies have been driven by either hacks or uh, misappropriation of wallets, uh, the maintenance of safe crypto uh, storage is highly important. So exchanges may also look to implement other controls around the wallet, and including the introduction of, of multi-sig wallets or multi-signature wallets. Uh, and more generally, you want to ensure that you have complete and proper oversight of your business, a good understanding of your assets, liabilities, and cash flow so that you can foresee any uh, liquidity or, or balance sheet issues. And, and just as a matter of common sense, it's important to make good business practices, ensure that you have re reliable payment platforms and, and stable banking if, if you're you know, one of these digital um, crypto asset exchanges. Well, I tell you, gentlemen, there's a lot to be covered in the in this area when we're looking at so many opportunities or approaches. But um, look, I want to talk about some general preventative measures. Many of our listeners and subscribers, they're investors themselves, and they might be looking to invest in a crypto company they see as high potential. Before they put money down uh, into a crypto platform, an exchange, a digital asset project, what are some of the red flags they need to watch out for? And how can investors protect themselves from some of the scenarios we discussed earlier? Sure. I think there's three points here and three key things that we need to remember. You know, make sure you fully understand the project you are looking to invest in and the risks that are associated with that project. And, and do the risk assessment yourself. Write them down. What could go wrong here? Because that's the way we look at the world. What could go wrong? Be aware of the most common crypto scams, some of which we discussed a little bit earlier. And where there are red flags associated with them, um, just be aware of them. Right? If it doesn't pass the smell test, think about whether I actually want to go ahead with this investment. And finally, ensure you understand the custody of your assets. Now, do you hold a token? Is the token held by the company? Or is there some third party that'll be in the middle? So who's actually holding your, your cryptocurrency? And this should be part of your general diligence uh, process as you evaluate the investment. Okay, so we've looked at it from an investor's perspective, but from the perspective of a project founder and team, what can they do in terms of procedures and controls to safeguard their assets from scams and fraudulent behavior from outsiders. Sure, we would recommend at least the following three things. Make sure as you build your project and, and move to going live that security is a core pillar in your strategic considerations. You should build off of this as you are only as strong as your weakest link. Exercise professional skepticism when assessing proposals, hiring staff, and otherwise people look, uh, letting people into your circle. 
be, be careful who you trust. And when in doubt, consult an advisor like Alvarez and Marcel, who can guide you through the best practices on how to avoid these many types of scams that we've discussed and, and to talk about really anything in this, in this area. Fantastic. Well, it's been a uh, really insightful conversation, and there are so many areas we have yet to have covered. But I wanted to thank you both, Henry Chambers and Jay Kim from Alvarez and Marcel, for joining us today and, and talking a bit more about this. So I, I would suggest know what you're investing in and be, uh, be aware. So thank you for joining Crypto Savvy today. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. It's been great hearing that data analytics and good old-fashioned footwork can certainly help companies when they're going through cases of fraud, corruption, in digital assets. And thanks to Alvarez and Marcel for pointing the way and providing leadership and insights. This is Walter Jennings at Hashkey Group, and you're listening to Crypto Savvy. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating. And wherever you get your podcast, subscribe and like. And thank you for joining Crypto Savvy. Thank you for listening to Crypto Savvy, the podcast that delivers the essentials brought to you by Hashkey Group. 